Mountaintop Conversations with Allison Felix. I'm Wes Felix, co-founder of Sage and co-host of this show with Allison. On Mountaintop Conversations, we celebrate the stories and experiences of leaders across politics, entrepreneurship, and culture. Each guest has scaled their own personal mountaintop and hopes to light the path for others to scale new heights themselves. We thought that while we have plenty of founders and CEOs on the podcast, it would be helpful to bring a new perspective to the conversation. So we're bringing in a woman who went from PR to private equity, all before she turned 30. I don't think anyone who even remotely knows her doubts that she's a powerhouse of a woman. And listen, if you heard the words private equity and you think this conversation will be intimidating, just know that one of Kira's many strong suits is the way she makes private equity easy to understand. And now for our conversation with Kira McKenzie Jackson. Well, Kira, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I've really been excited about this conversation and I really love it because I feel like you've positioned yourself um, to really show women that they can go after that job they want. I love how you went from uh, PR to private equity and just that journey. So can you share a little bit with us how you did that? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I think ever since that dinner, when I met you guys, I think it was with Natalie from Bala. I've just yeah. been, I mean, biggest fan of Sage, biggest fan of your guys's. So I, I couldn't be more excited to be here. Um, high, high level. I, I'll give the 30,000 foot view and we can zoom in where it makes sense. Um, started my career in PR. I was the first employee at a PR firm focused on kind of health and wellness brands, better for you categories, um, and top of funnel strategy in San Diego. Uh, we grew that for about three years or so early days of my career. I realized I needed to be in LA or in New York in order to really kind of kick off what I wanted to accomplish within that realm. And this was pre my understanding of anything outside of sort of like storytelling and public relations, even influencer marketing. Um, so moved to LA, ended up working for a couple of other agencies and made my way back to my, to my initial, to my initial home, that initial company, um, and opened our LA office at the time. Uh, when I opened the LA office, we also kind of dovetailed with what became sort of an opportunistic process with a, prior, a performance marketing agency called Power Digital. Power Digital at the time was sort of in the business of running single channel acquisitions. Uh, they were known for being sort of like digital marketing agency, but we're working on building out what a full funnel marketing stack could look like. Uh, we were 45 or so at the time at Covet PR, which is where I initially started. Um, so when we sold to Power Digital, that was my initial sort of transition and exposure within the private equity realm. Power Digital was owned by a private equity firm at the time. And this was pre my understanding of what that process really looked like. So we can get into that too. Um, but when we were acquired, we became a 150 person company. Um, and then in the next sort of like three years or so scaled that to about 500 people. And then in that time also did a formal process where the private equity firm that had owned us prior sold us to another private equity firm. And that was during the COVID. So I feel like it wasn't a, a perfect example of what a private equity process really looks like now that I recognize it in the real world. Uh, but we did a full roadshow. Um, all of it was virtual, of course, and we were really courting kind of strategics, but then also private equity firms um, within the space to be able to acquire us. Uh, so ultimately, we sold to Court Square uh, Capital Partners. And when that sort of went down, this whole world opened up in terms of what opportunity really looked like um, when you're working with companies and brands. And I think I'd had such a siloed understanding of growth and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I enjoyed communications. I enjoyed influencer marketing, loved affiliate marketing. A lot of it was super data-driven and I understood how it fit into the larger growth plan. But what I didn't understand was sort of like who was behind the scenes, pulling the strings and propelling that growth or allowing that growth to happen via capital. The other side of it too is, you know, as a service provider, you are proving your value day in and day out. Um, and being on, being in, in the investor kind of realm, you really come with that inherent value. And I think I got very lucky in finding a firm that I ended up joining our X3 growth partners, um, that kind of balances this mix of what I did for, you know, 10 years working with talent and pairing them with brands, but then also being able to be an investor um, and be able to have exposure to kind of the qualitative sides that I was so familiar with, but then also the quantitative sides, what it meant to invest in and scale companies. Cool. Yeah. There's something for me that, that makes me think about like how, how we get to where we are and where we're going. Right. I think that, you know, our society puts so much thought and kind of pressure on what do you want to be when you grow up? And having 100%. this master plan, you know, it, it's, I'm really curious about this, you know, for you, Kira, but, but even for you, Allison, like, I feel like I know the answer to a lot of questions I ask you, but I don't really know the answer to this one. So it's, I'm super intrigued on, on what your answer is going to be. But, but I know that for me, there was a time when I was maybe eight years old, I was in the backseat of my aunt's car, um, Auntie Melly Allison, and uh, that the back seat of that car, she had this BMW 325i. I thought it was so cool. It was the first time I was ever in a BMW, 
And like, I just thought it was awesome. I was sitting in the back seat and I kind of had my head up against the window. I'm sleeping. And, and I overhear my aunt say to my mom, well, yeah. And you know, those lawyers, $200 an hour and my ears perked up like eight, nine year old me. I'm like $200 in one hour. Oh, well, that's what I need to be when I grow up is a lawyer and no idea what it was. And, um, but I knew they made $200 an hour and I thought that is interesting, you know, and in my nine-year-old brain, eight-year-old brain, I'm thinking I can buy two pairs of Jordans in one hour if I do this job. Yes. And, you know, and what's crazy is it's kind of like a silly story, but I built my life on it. People would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like a lawyer. And then they were like, that's incredible. Cause most kids are saying firefighters and I'm saying, I want to be an attorney at nine. They're like, this kid must be brilliant and have it together. And I'm just thinking of Jordans and, you know, they'd ask then what kind of lawyer do you want to be? And I didn't know. And so I started reading John Grisham books when I was 10 and I was like, criminal defense attorney. That's what I want to be, you know? And then OJ Simpson trial happened and I was like, I don't think I want to be Johnny Cochran. I don't think that's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, then I got to high school and it was sports and entertainment law. And it's what I based my college major on. It's what I did after college, you know, and then you're sitting there at 30 years old and it's like, how did I get to where I'm at? And the truth is when I really trace it back, I use the logic of an eight-year-old sitting in the backseat of his aunt's three series BMW trying to buy two pairs of Jordans in an hour's work. And that's how I became what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, That's really frightening to think about, you know, and it sounds like your journey wasn't that. Sounds like your journey was a much healthier journey of pursuing kind of step-by-step where you wanted to go with your life. But I'm really interested, is that true? Do you feel like you're you know, exactly where you're supposed to be now, even if your path wasn't college, B-school, Wall Street, da, 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 like that same thing. And then, you know, maybe Allison, you could follow that up with how you ended up being an Olympic champion. Cause I know you're, that wasn't your dream when you were eight and maybe it was, it was just on a balance beam, but you can tell us more about that later. <laughs> Oh, I'm excited to hear Allison's response to this. Um, <laughs> I think from, from my perspective, it's, the way that society sort of drives the what you want to be conversation is so financial. And I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's important to have that understanding of what do I need to do in order to give myself the life that I want. For me, I understand in saying this, but I come from a privileged position, but I was really focused on building what I loved into a career. And I think if you focus on what you love, what inspires you, what fires you up and gets you out of bed in the morning, money will follow. And it's more about being the best you can be at whatever it is that you decide to do. That's all I cared about. I mean, that's still all I cared about is every morning I wake up and decide I'm going to be the best at whatever it is I do today. And as long as that happens day in and day out, It compounds over years, decades. And my hope is that, you know, I don't know if you ever feel like you are where you're supposed to be in life, uh, but my hope is that, you know, by the time I'm 50, 60, I have that sort of moment where it feels like I can look back on that road and say, I really accomplished something and I'm where I feel like I need to be at this point in my life. I love that. I feel like that's like, such a, a goal, I feel like, for so many people to be able to to do that. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing, like when you find yourself in that space and able to do it. I think for me, um, had a different experience. I mean, I think I really went after what I saw. So um, our mom was a third grade teacher and I grew up in her classroom, you know, correcting papers. And I really loved all of that and really enjoyed it. And so that's what I started to pursue. And I believe that I wanted to be a a teacher. And then in high school, I was at a new school and didn't know anybody. And my family encouraged me to come out for the track team really to meet new people. And so I I stumbled into it. And then I started to fall in love with it. 
Um, and then that's when I think that I started to have more of an open mind, but it was still different because I was, even though I loved track, I was just thinking like, okay, this is going to get me to college. You know, this will get my um, education paid for. It'll be great. And I'll be able to, you know, be a teacher and, <laughs> and all of those things. And then it just started to kind of build and build. So I think it's really um, it resonates with me when you talk about like doing what you love because it began to be that. And then I think it's taken me down all of these different paths, but I think it has been doing what I love and it's looked a lot different than when I thought it was going to be. Um, but it's been an interesting, an interesting journey for sure. Oh, I can imagine. Um, I guess the question for you, Kara, is just could, for our listeners, could you break down what private equity, you know, looks like what it actually is and just the basics of like what an angel investor is and walk us through that raising and that investment process. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'll kind of set the stage with, we hear angel investor, we hear venture capital, we hear, you know, private equity. In some instances, you might hear growth equity. Um, so where I sit is sort of in the growth equity from a professional perspective. The firm I work for, we invest you know, five to $10 million in post series A companies, usually profitable, but it's really kind of like that balance between venture capital, which is early. I mean, a little bit more risky. We all know this, um, and private equity, which is that later stage sort of like scale to sale. Um, and then when you look at angel investing, I mean, typically speaking, that's your, that's your first check-in. It's usually friends and family. It might be strategic angels that can help kind of grow the company to where you need it to be for that first sort of official raise. Uh, but when you look at the scale, it goes angel, venture, growth, and then private equity. And then from there, you know, companies will bounce around being public or private. You know, they might IPO or they might stay private, like sold to a strategic or another private equity firm, which is what happened with my last firm. Um, but that's sort of the cadence. Uh, and then in terms of like the investment process, because personally I sit on kind of the angel investing side, and then professionally I'm more in the growth realm. I mean, candidly, the angel side is so much more fun because you're right, Allison, you get to work directly with the founders. You get to see their vision and help bring it to life. I mean, there's something so there's something so inspiring and uplifting about being able to help someone bring their potential to the mm -hmm. next level. And that's what I've always loved. I think about even being in PR and storytelling, I love being able to tell somebody's story and make it clear how special they are, how, how special the vision is, how much opportunity there is within that realm. And really you're doing the same thing as an investor. You're not siloed on the sidelines as somebody's cheerleader as, you know, an external partner might be. You are actually rolling up your sleeves, getting in the trenches and making things happen, whether that's through connections, capital, value add, which is what I spearhead for my growth equity firm. Um, but it's just, it's a different kind of, it's, it's a more intimate way of supporting and involvement. And I wonder, Allison, for you, that's probably as a founder yourself, you can empathize with that process. It's probably a lot of what draws you to the space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you were talking, I'm like, yes, that's it. It's the, it's, I love being inspired, you know, through the process and um, by the vision and, and how they'll accomplish it and being a part of that process of bringing it to life um, is such a, a really cool thing. And so I think that really just, you know, is something I'm passionate about. Okay. So for our listeners, say there's somebody listening right now and she's deciding, yeah, I hear about this angel investing. Um, sounds cool. How, how do I do it? Or I would imagine, cause I know I thought this like, well, you have to be rich to, to do that. And I would say, uh, I think you have to be like, fortunate. You've got to be, you know, have some, some privilege. It's definitely not just, I don't know, it's from where I sit, like anybody can do it. It doesn't matter, you know, but it is not this out of the realm of possibility thing. It may take a little bit of time to save up, but maybe you could just walk us through yeah. for our listeners. They want to angel invest. Like what would your advice be? How much money should they have to be thinking about, you know, all of that stuff? 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so funny that you say that because I do think that's a common misconception that people who are angel investors are, you know, wealthy. Um, and you do have to be comfortable if you're investing your own money, you have to be comfortable losing whatever it is that you invest. And I think that's sort of my barometer. There are all of these metrics that are sort of like percentage of, of your, um, of your income or percentage of your net. And ultimately what it comes down to is whatever you invest, you should just feel comfortable never seeing again. And as long as you can do that, then it makes sense. That being said, I do think that there's a world where maybe you're not investing your own money. I know a lot of people who run SPVs, special purpose vehicles, where they'll actually bring together other angel investors, investors who are investing their own capital, and they'll organize a syndicate in a round. So they might take, you know, a $200,000 allocation in a $1.5 million pre-seed. And then they'll take that and they'll find people, you know, like I might go out and round you all up, be like, everyone's going to put in, you know, five to $20,000 and build out this community of syndicates that can then invest through that SPV into the company. And I think that's kind of a workaround. If you want to start getting exposure to angel investing, you can start running your own SPVs. I'm pretty sure that you could actually run those SPVs without being an accredited investor. The other sort of boundary that you wind wind up sort of hitting, if you are angel investing your own money, Wes, is you do have to be an accredited investor. And I think that's sort of like candidly the barrier that I find as being most frustrating within the industry. I mean, ultimately, accreditation is just the government's way of protecting investors so that they're not overextending themselves. You're you're making sure that they understand the commitment that they're making. And I, I respect that. I think what's difficult about accreditation is it makes it really hard to have true diversity and diversity of thought amongst a cap table because the people with the people with fortune and opportunities are typically the people who pass that between each other. So you're looking at sort of like an echo chamber of the same faces, same ideas. And I think that's one component that of venture capital or, or private equity markets that I see as a huge area for improvement, something that I'm extremely passionate about. Yeah, it, it makes me think of, of equity crowdfunding. Um, and kind of like how that, that new opportunity is there. And I think under Obama, we saw like, you know, regulations get a bit more relaxed there where equity crowdfunding was something that was possible. Um, it's something that at Sage, we think about a lot, you know, it's something that is really exciting to us. Um, and it's exciting because, you know, we're building a brand for women and we want them to be able to take a, take part in the change that we're trying to create. I think where we feel really confident is, you know, we're, we're going to upend a legacy industry. We're going to change how footwear is made, you know, and does that mean one day we become as big as Nike? Like, I, I have no idea, probably not, but like, you know, but I do think we become a really, a really big company and we change an industry. Um, and, you know, I want Allison and I want the women who are part of our community to be able to, to take part in that upside. Um, but it is really challenging. You know, we had a conversation with legal advisors and they were like, Hey, you know, this is, this is risky. It's tough. You might mess up your cap table. Like, I'm not sure we can exactly do it. You know, you talk to your different advisors, you talk to, you know, the VCs that have been involved and it's like, yeah, no, that don't do that. That's not good. That's not interesting. We don't like that. And, you know, and I think there's this balance that, that I I know Allison in your journey that you've, you've straddled a lot of how do you make sure that you're being smart listening to good advice, listening to good counsel, but also not being afraid of changing how things work. Um, and knowing that a lot of times there are, there are going to be people along the way that are threatened by change. They're not going to want to see you lean into equity crowdfunding because it means venture starts to look a whole lot different. And there are a lot of people on G5s because of venture, that system is working. 
for them. Um, so, you know, I kind of just wonder on that one, what are some of your thoughts around equity crowdfunding? Um, and then, and then to you, Allison, like, how do you deal with straddling that line of trying to be smart, trying to make the best decisions, but also not being afraid to challenge the status quo? Yeah. I I mean, speaking to equity crowdfunding, it's something that really excites me. It means that people can be involved without being accredited investors. One of my girlfriends actually just raised $100,000 on Republic. So it's possible. I think that it's actually from the the PR in me thinks it's amazing from a storytelling standpoint. It's also an incredible way to get your consumers to feel like they have some skin in the game and really evangelize the company. I think there are a lot of positives. That being said, to your point, it is extremely time-consuming, extremely expensive, um, and very, very difficult to be able to actually manage on the company side. So Allison, I'd actually, I'd love to hear your perspective, especially since it sounds like you've had some of these conversations in the past. Yeah, I think when you're thinking about doing things differently, it's always challenging. Um, And I think at different points in my career, I've been faced with that. But I think it took me a whole journey to get to the point of saying like, okay, I feel comfortable with doing things a different way. I think for the longest time I was like, okay, I'm, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like to get to, you know, my end goal, I have to put these pieces together. And that's just what it is like head down, do my job, you know, and then that's it. And then I think when I started to get into real life situations and I was faced with different things, it was like, okay, well maybe it's not going to work the best if I just do the thing that's always been done and then start to question that like, well, why? But I think it's hard. I think it's really scary for me. It was terrifying to ever think outside of the box. And, um, I, I felt like I had a lot of doubts around it, but then once I did like take a a step forward and, and move towards a path that was less traditional, um, I was like, oh, wow, like this is possible to do things differently. So I think you always have to like evaluate your situation and like what's best for you and like what are the the risks involved and, um, you know, can you can you manage that? You know, like when you were even talking about, you know, the investing, like being able to say like, okay, this I have to be comfortable with just losing this. And so I think it's really weighing all those things. And then sometimes you get in a situation where you just deeply believe something. You're like, I'm just, I, I, my gut tells me this is right. I just got to go for it. And then you do. And then you kind of like work backwards and sort through, you know, the mess on the other end. But I think it's really, um, yeah, being open to doing things a non-traditional way. I love that idea of just sometimes you just have to leap. Yeah, totally. There's something that I was thinking with you, Kira, like PR to growth equity investing. You know, it feels like there is not this, you know, this, this like common thread there, but but it's people, you know, and it's storytelling. And I think the best companies have really powerful whys, um, and they've got pretty good what's, you know, and their what may not be, I think of Apple when I think of that, you know, is the Apple computer, is it that much better than a Dell computer or than a gateway computer? Like, or is their why just so much better? Um, so when you're thinking about, you know, this transition, this, this journey you've been on PR growth equity, um, to me, it feels like you must really care about people and seeing their visions come to life. Um, is that true? And if it is, what made you like fall in love with, with people and helping them achieve, um, kind of the seemingly impossible? Yeah. I mean, I, I think when I think about my superpower, my superpower is connecting people. Um, and that's because, you know, I'm great at it, but I also love doing it. And it kind of ladders back to what I was saying earlier. Like if you do what you love, 
then you will wind up in the right place at the right time and life will fall into place. That is, my husband hates that I live my life like that. It's like, but I really do. I really do. And, and honestly, I, it, it works really well for me at least. Um, that being said, when you look at kind of connective tissue between PR or top of funnel marketing, because really what I was doing is anything sort of like content driving that would then fuel your retention and performance strategies all for consumer brands. So I understood how they were differentiated in the market. I understood the competitive landscape. I understood the story that they needed to tell in order to reach that target consumer. And then I also understood how to expand that consumer demographic through partnerships. And all of that is sort of what I bring to growth equity from a qualitative lens. I think what's unique is not necessarily the jump from PR to venture capital, because truthfully, I would be a phenomenal early stage investor. I like to think I am a very good early stage angel investor. Growth equity is just a little closer to that private equity realm where the quantitative side of diligence is just that much more critical. And I think it comes down to like an amazing team that run the quantitative side of that diligence. But candidly speaking, you can learn it. If you're interested and you're excited, you can learn how to do diligence on companies, how to read a PL, how to understand what their unit economics look like and how that's going to impact their ability to scale. Um, so once you have kind of I like to think of it as the innate lens of, I care about people, I care about companies, I care about storytelling, and I understand how they fit within kind of the larger macro consumer cycle. Then you learn the quantitative side, then you're you know unstoppable. And I think I would love to see more people in this world from backgrounds like mine, where the care and the genuine component of wanting to grow businesses but also the qualitative insights are there and applied to some of the later stage, more quantitative components. I'm curious, was this like a seamless transition for you? Because you talk about it, it seems like, you know, kind of very effortless, but I'm just wondering, like, did you ever struggle with any imposter syndrome or, you know, having a big pivot in your life like that? I would imagine that it's such different spaces. Um, How did you step into that? That is such a good question and something I struggle with every day. I think it's really easy to make your life look effortless and mm-hmm. um, it just it just isn't on a day-to-day. I think the biggest change isn't necessarily the shift in industries. I think the biggest change is realizing that you had a career for a decade. I'm very curious about your perspective on this because this is very <laughs> similar for you. Um, you have a career for years and years and you become the best at what you do. And people recognize you for it. They celebrate you for it. And then you take that and you decide, okay, well, I've kind of tapped out here. I want to learn something else. I want to accomplish something else. And you pivot into a different career path. And the imposter syndrome sets in of the older we get, the less we feel comfortable. I'm speaking for myself, but I've heard many people say the same. The less we feel comfortable being bad at something or being new to something. And I think you just have to get comfort in that discomfort if you're going to be sort of pivoted into your quote unquote, like second life. Yeah, I definitely selfishly asked that question because I've been talking to a lot of people who have, you know, made that pivot. And I think it's exactly what you're saying. It's like you go from being excellent at something and you know, being so confident in that. And then you step into something where it's all new and it's all different and it's uncomfortable. And it's not that you're not capable, but you're starting at such a different place at a a time in your life where most people aren't doing that. So I think there are all these challenges to it, but I think there's also something really exciting about the potential and the future and all the things. So where I find myself right now is in that shift and it is hard and it's, you know, I'm figuring out my way and all the things. And I think it is like being okay with like not always getting it right. And I think that's so different from where I've been in the past where it's like, no, I've, I've done this for 20 years. Like I know how to get it right. And now it's like, okay, I'm learning something new, like give myself grace. And it's just kind of unnatural. So I'm always interested in, in other people's journey through that. Oh, you bring up something so, so interesting because I think it's also hard to remember that because you did what you did for 20 years, you are bringing such a unique perspective 
to a space that desperately needs that innovation and disruption. So I think also the confidence in understanding that your unique perspective is part of your superpower in pivoting into this new realm also sort of like quells some of that for me. And I I hope it does for you as well. Yeah, it's such a good reminder. You know, I'm constantly like, okay, this new world, like things are called something different, but like, no, it's actually, I'm actually really good at that. And like, let me bring that to the table. Totally. They need you. Well, I think for you, Allison, when you, you know, as a sprinter, if someone was drawing up the perfect sprinter and you got to just take a pencil and sketch that person out, you probably would sketch someone naturally like stronger than you, probably like a little bit taller than you. Um, you know, but I think that there's something about that word innovation that we gloss over a whole lot. It means you've got to do something that hasn't been done before. And that means the statements like we need to find somebody who's already done it. Well, then you're not going to innovate. Like, and why would you think that, that you could, you know, um, it means you need a unique perspective. And even if you did take the exact same route as everyone else, okay, are you going to be willing to tap deep down into your brain and do something different that's against everything you were taught? Because everything taught you do it one specific way. And I think that's one of the things that I loved in watching your career, Allison. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this. But I feel like Bobby, your coach, didn't change the way you ran. He just optimized it. He said, this is how you naturally run. It's gotten you pretty far. I think we can go and kind of in your world, Kira, like we can look at the unit economics. We can, there's some things we can tighten up here to get the maximum amount of profit. Um, what did that feel like for you, Allison? Is that right? That he didn't try to change you? And, and do you, yeah, just tell us a little bit about that relationship with Bobby and, and yeah, did he let you be yourself and just refine you a bit or did he try to fully change you? I think he definitely let me be myself. Um, I think there were definitely things that he helped me get better at, things that he helped me clean up. But I think it was it was such a special like partnership over the years. And I think when I came into it, it was, you know, he was very intimidating and, you know, he's a yeller and a screamer. And it was like, okay, you know, I, I was a teenager. And so I think as I got older and grew, the relationship shifted so much because it was like, oh no, I can say something back to you. Like I'm, you know, I fully can, um, you know, have our arguments and our disagreements and, and we grew, you know, together. And I think that partnership and being able to trust someone fully, um, then they can like bring the best out in you and he can, you know, challenge me in certain ways. And I think that's what I loved most about not him changing a whole bunch of things, but he saw the potential and he saw a plan to get me to a place where I didn't even think was possible. So I think it was just letting me kind of evolve and grow and really just like taking the time to get there. Um, because I think you do, you have to be patient when you're trying to do something that, you know, many people haven't done before. Yeah. Kira, what, what role has coaching or mentorship played in your career? Again, coming from a place where I was very, very lucky. Um, I think mentorship is what kicked off my career. I think mentorship is what gave me, it's what gave me the confidence to be able to trust myself in making this pivot and other pivots I've made. I was lucky where that PR firm where I was the first employee, uh, my boss at the time, who is now one of my best friends and probably closer to an older sister to me, um, she recognized what I was great at and what I needed support in and then spent, you know, the seven years that we spent working together helping to build me up. Um, and I think if you have somebody like that, it can be your boss, it can be your friend, it could be your coach, it could be a family member. I think really leaning into that and being comfortable, again, being uncomfortable with them, um, that's really where you can really tap into your full potential. One of the things that I'd like to start doing more of, um, and I do it on kind of a smaller scale, 
but I'd love to be more involved in kind of prolonged mentorship. I think that there's a lot of value that both sides bring from that relationship. And when you're starting out in your career, I think that there's, you know, kind of a misconception where you feel like you're taking somebody else's time or you're, you know, taking away from something else that they could be doing. When in actuality, again, the older I get, the more solidified in my career or careers I get, the more I realize how much value having that connectivity to a younger, you know, hungry person that I can help to mold and guide. And there's so much value in it. Um, And I think it also ladders back to like the older I get, the more I'm not fearful, but I'm conscious of being, you know, old in my mentality versus staying young in my mentality. Um, And I think mentorship keeps me feeling young in my brain. It also inspires me to maintain kind of that veracity for early adoption. I am just voracious when it comes to Discord or Geneva, or I'm bullish on blockchain and Web3 technology. Like it is so, especially for consumer brands, like it is so important to stay curious and excited. And I think if you don't have that connection to the younger generation, um, then you might be closing yourself off to a lot of opportunity. Both of you find yourselves, you know, in rooms that you're quote unquote, not supposed to be in. Um, How do you, how do you bravely walk into those rooms? What do you tell yourself, if anything, as you walk into them? Um, And what does it, what does it feel like to kind of have what I would imagine would be this, this slight twinge of why don't you want me here the way that I want to be here if you do have that? Um, but what is it? How do you do it? How do you walk into those rooms that that you're not supposed to be in? And maybe, Allison, you could kick us off. I think for me, it's really, I feel like it's been something I've been having to do all my life, you know, whether it was at school, you know, um, just always being one of the very few, you know, people of color. Like, I just felt like I always had to learn how to move in, in different rooms, you know, and I was always the one learning how to speak a different language, you know, and, um, coming from a different background. And so I think as I got older and professionally, I was very like comfortable at that point with doing that. Um, and just navigating it, it just became, you know, something that I've always done. Um, and always had to do. And then I think I was able to connect it to purpose because I think at this point, you know, I don't necessarily have to do it. You know, I could just say like, oh, that's not something I'm going to do anymore. But I think knowing that things need to change, um, having a reason why I'm doing it to me, that, that gives me that push because I don't, there's a lot of rooms that I don't really want to be in, you know, and it would be much easier not to be there trying to change things. But I think, you know, thinking back to like, okay, why am I showing up today? And why am I doing this or that? And it's because I do want the landscape to look different. And um, I want those rooms to not be so uncomfortable for the people who are coming after me. I love that. That resonates so much with me. Um, I think I would just add it. I like to surprise people. Um, I think that there's um, an initial sort of reaction that I get. I'm young. I know what I look like. um, And I I think that there's sort of an initial interpretation of the value or lack thereof that I'll add to a room when I walk into it. And a part of me does like the shock value of proving that that is in actuality not the case. I wonder if that will last. Uh, But for me, that's the only sort of addition. The other thing I'll add is I think I've become more clear on understanding that you don't have to be in the room to impact the room. Um, And one of the things that I was realizing, actually, I was realizing it this morning when I went for my run is I I put on a pair of shoes. When I lace up a pair of a pair of sage sneakers, right? I think 
the reason why I'm putting these sneakers on is yes, they're cute, they're comfortable, what have you, but they are a big, not, I can't curse, I'm sure on this, but they're an F you to sort of like the system. (laughs) Okay. Yes. It's a big fuck you to sort of the system that's existed and hasn't had space for people like me. So even as a consumer thinking about, you know, quote unquote, the room being the grocery aisle or, you know, intermix or wherever you shop, you know, you're, you're voting with your dollars. Um, And in a way that is you sort of entering the room, making your presence known, proving that you're worthy of being in that room and then leaving your vote. And I think that that's important to remember that I worked really hard to be in the position where I am, where I do have access to a lot of rooms that are otherwise closed that, Allison, to your point, I probably honestly would not willingly enter, but I'm glad that I'm able to enter. Um, But you can do that sort of without, you can do that at the beginning of your career. You could do that as an 80-year-old. You can do that your entire life and make a real difference. Yeah, that very, very true and impactful words um, and such important words and such an important reminder. I think it kind of is a nice way to lead into us learning about your mountaintop moment. And, you know, this podcast is called Mountaintop Conversations. And we pull that from Michelle Obama, where she talks about how she's been in all of the rooms. She's all, whatever the the room you're trying to get to, she's been there with the world leaders, the billionaires, the celebrities, she's been there. Um, And she can leave that room and say, oh, they're just like the rest of us. Um, I don't need to set up shop here. I don't have to stay here. I can leave this mountaintop. And instead of just looking for what's next and how do I go higher, I can go walk down the mountain a little bit extend my hand, pull somebody up on their journey. And now we can start climbing again together and then reach that new vantage point. Um, And I I just feel like hearing you talk about how you can impact a room, um, the rooms that you want to be in, the rooms that you don't want to be in. I think hearing both of you talk, I'm so glad that both of you are brave enough to show up in those rooms that you don't want to be in. Because I think, you know, women, men, our society as a whole need the two of you in those rooms that's where change happens it's it's people holding their head high and walking into a room that doesn't feel comfortable that's that's how we create create change um but also allison and i say this a lot we we love this question because it's rarely what we would think we can look at your life your career on paper and be like oh yeah that's probably the highlight right there and then when we ask you um it's fascinating to hear what people really say. So we'd love to hear what is, what are one of your mountaintop moments and how has it impacted your life? Yeah. I mean, we've done a lot of kind of career talking too. I think I've started to feel a little bit more confident in my personal life as well. And I think that's also something that comes when you really come into your own, you feel like you know, maybe it's family first or it's career first, whatever you, you conquer that. And then you feel like you can kind of really attack the next. Um, for me, I mean, probably primary mountaintop moment was when I got married and I don't want to say that in like a cheesy, weird way, but I think that moment, yes, I got to marry my best friend. Um, But I also realized that I could be more than what I did and that maybe who I was in those relationships was just as important as, you know, who I was in my career. Um, And that was a big moment for me because I'd spent, you know, I'd spent nine, nine and a half years at that time using my career to define me, who I was. Mm -hmm. Um, And I talk about this a lot with my therapist, with my husband. It's kind of like, you are not what you do. You are who you are. And I'd never had a moment in my life where it felt like I could just be. And by being, I was special and important and impactful. Um, So it changed my perspective in terms of how I look at my personal life and and my career. Uh, Sorry for the cheesy answer, but it's amazing. Yeah, not remotely cheesy, I think. 
I think that's beautiful. And I think it's so beautiful to hear from someone as accomplished as you in your career. And I think that's what's so important about that question, that balance, that, you know, we bring it back to at its core, what is really most important. So nothing cheesy about that. It's, um, it's really, really cool. I love that. So we do just like four real quick rapid fire questions at the end, if that's all right with you. Yeah, of course. All right. Rapid fire questions with Kira McKenzie Jackson. So your favorite thing to do after a long week? Oh my gosh. Go for a long walk, get coffee, and just walk around the neighborhood. It's perfect. What brand excites you most right now? Not Sage. Okay, okay. Um, you actually just talked to her. Well, one of them, Doe and Sabina. I am obsessed with Sabina. I'm obsessed with Doe. I am so bullish on the future of marketing being partnerships with like-minded non-competing brands and talent. And she just, she kills it. Um, another one would be Natalie from Bala, of course. Very similar sort of model and creativity and just incredible founders. Love that. Um, if you could do anything besides what you currently do right now, what would it be? Oh, I'd be a professor. I'd be something where I just got to learn every day and write about it or just research it and soak it all up. Um, yeah, something where I get to learn every day. Cool. And what's your favorite piece of jewelry? My favorite piece of jewelry is my engagement ring, but a better version is probably my my necklace. My husband got me a tennis necklace that I wanted for a very long time for our first wedding anniversary. And it took a lot of convincing. I had to tell him, you know, you only have one first wedding anniversary so make it count and he did he did awesome well he sounds awesome and thank you so much for talking with us today Kara thank you for joining us oh my gosh of course this was so inspiring thank you so much for having me Thank you to all of you for spending time with us this week. We hope that as you scale your own mountaintop, you take time to reflect on the lessons you're learning and the opportunities you'll have to inspire others. 